Wow. Amen. It's the Word of God, right? May God uh, lead us to believe it. May He help us to write it on our hearts so we don't sin against Him. Let's be warned by it together. Acts 5, 12 through 16, signs amidst the shadows. Why would people come from all over to Jerusalem and line the streets with sickly, oppressed, possessed, bothered, depressed, diseased, and broken friends of theirs and lay them in the streets? If we think that they all came for healing of infirmament only, that they only came for their issues, and that's all that's present, we would be mistaken. And we would not be fair to the text that some do seek belief. Some actually are there in the hopes of a deeper healing, a deeper healing of the soul. However, also, if we think that they all came for salvation alone, despite, their, uh, despite change in their physical circumstances, we would also be mistaken as well. But rather than think either of those extremes, there is a third way to think, almost always, regarding Scripture, regarding the interpretation of Scripture and its purpose for us. You see, the first way of thinking is to fully read one's self into a Bible text. We call this eisegetical, I am the center of it type of study. Swap what happened then, you know, this portrait of the first church, for ourselves prescriptively. So it happened to them, it must happen to us. So preach that, believe that. It's a one-to-one. That's a first way of thinking, to fully read oneself into the text. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. We will see throughout our study this morning that that way of study is dangerous. But second, there's a second way of thinking that is to fully disconnect oneself. Uh, So to totally remove oneself entirely from the text the entire time. So understand what happened then, this portrait of the first church, to be so unrelated to our affairs, our context, that we're always learning about it and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. That's the way Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.7. There is a way to study this and actually always be learning but never arriving uh, to a conclusion. That's that second error. This too is dangerous. Takes the teeth. It takes the teeth, if you will, out of Scripture's bite. Uh, to help us to live in the world. The third way that I'm hoping we study this text together this morning is balanced. Okay? It seeks balance, it preserves context, and it wholeheartedly believes and hopes that we're not wrong in applying the word to ourselves and to today's situation. Third way thinkers are, are Christians that are students of the word of God. They can pluck the sign from the shadow. They can see the sign in the shadow. They can understand what God is working. So Jesus uh, was and is and remains the ultimate example of what we call this third way, this stewardship of God's word. He was the greatest preacher. Uh, He was the greatest testimony. He's the greatest uh, one who teaches these witnesses in our text, and he's the reason this stuff is happening. The one who perfectly heals the sick, raised the dead, cast out the darkness, uh, was the one who was willing to become the sick, beat death, and transform darkness into light. He did it, we believe, together this morning by the power of the gospel. If we are to make sense of this text, we need to see the signs, the signs and wonders in the book of Acts. 
We need to see them for what they are. And that is my hope this morning, is to see these signs for what they are. We will ask and answer two questions of the text for our outline this morning. We're going to ask, how should we understand the signs and wonders of the first church? Our first question we're going to answer is, and our first point of the sermon is, how? How should we understand the signs and the wonders of the first church? And then secondly, we'll ask the question, what effect did those signs and wonders of the first church have? So uh, what effect did the signs and the wonders have? Let's ask this first question together. Let's seek this third way together this morning for our edification. How uh, should we understand the signs and wonders of the first church? For our first point, I want you to look at verse 12 and verse 15 and 16 in our text together. So this passage is is a third summary uh, by Luke that we have seen of the early church and its activities. The first summary, if you remember, was in Acts 2, 42 through 47. That summary was making sense of the spiritual habits and the commitments and the activity of 3,000 men that were numbered, along with women and children, uh, of the first gathering. And that first list was a summary of those habits and commitments they had of the 3,000. The second summary appeared in Acts 4. So chapter before this, in verses 32 through 35. And in that section, it was making sense, Luke was, in summary, of the logistics, uh, the meeting of needs, the spiritual disciplines of a church that had now grown from 3,000 to 5,000 men that they could number, not counting women and children. That first gathering. And now our text offers insight after the death of two false professors in verses 1 through 11 of how this now innumerable group that has exceeded 5,000 in its ability to be numbered, this now innumerable group gathers regularly and it gives a summary of how they saw amazing displays of God's power and grace among them. And it's because of their purity before the Lord. So, No spiritual disciplines are recounted in this summary. Did you notice that? There are no spiritual disciplines recounted. Instead, it's a testimony to God's faithfulness along with those two previous summaries in mind. Luke anticipates you to read this book. That's why we preach through books of the Bible. We also read through books of the Bible. Had you been reading, have you been paying attention in Bible study, this is another summary, right? It's a third one. I'm trying to show you this morning that Uh, It it deals with the stuff, the potent uh, example of God's miraculous works and sign gifts that he was giving to the early church. So verse 12, as I told you, and verses 15 and 16, our brother read them, but look at them with me again in light of that context. So in 12, it says, now many signs and many wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. We have an inserted note. We'll skip 13 and 14. That's our second point. It's a parenthetical. But then you could literally pick up in 15. So that even, uh, they, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Those people, uh, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. That's amazing. Do not lose the awe and wonder of it. It really is amazing. But we're asking the question, what uh, do we do? do How do we understand 
the signs and the wonders, uh, the miracles and the healings, the casting out demons and the obvious supernatural that is presented to us in scripture like this. Well, let me say this, how we understand this and what we do with it actually says a lot about our faith in Jesus, both individually and as a whole. It really does. So we need to get this right. And I want to try to get it right by first seeing how often we get it wrong. So there's two current trends that appear and have been appearing, um, not only in our modern vernacular, which I'm going to use, but just throughout church history, of, a wrong and a, and a, and a, uh, of two wrong ways to interpret and understand signs and unbelief. So first, there are those that are skeptical and are trapped in unbelief concerning the miraculous. So natural man and people... Uh, that are, you know, we, we are in our own minds, oftentimes one error is we fall into, you know, being modern in our interpretation. Uh, we get dominated by an appetite that boasts of science, of rationale, of trying to uh, make sense. Today it parades as progressive thought. You know, it's a progressive notion that we can have uh, control. And the obsession with control uh, that is present in this first trend we see is that the evaluation of miracles in the scriptures is that they are medieval. They're to be dismissed entirely. A, a person who takes this approach has a type of unbelief that seems to be you know, really popular among uh, secular minds uh, that they study or that they have in their own heart, and it, and it, and it boasts of modern scholarship, right? It tries to totally dismiss or to not count things that are miraculously presented in the Bible, like these signs that were happening in the early church. For example, almost everywhere, uh, every witnessing encounter that I've had in the last two years in our city, in Nacogdoches, has led me to discover that everyone possesses this type of doubt, this, this error when dealing with uh, miraculous things, God's miraculous ability. Most of the time it's subtly, but it is there. I'll give you some examples. I've had college students, two different college students that I've sat down with, uh, over time in witnessing, and uh, have told me that it's hard for them to believe that such things happened, to count them as true when they see them in Scripture. Um, two of them. I I've had a local blue-collar hand who is as far away from scholarship that you can think of that I've sat with who's admitted to me that it's hard to explain such things in the Bible, and personally, when we got to the nub of it, cited this idea, like you know, God doing these miraculous things in Scripture as a main struggle that keeps them from wanting to read Scripture. I've had that conversation. And of course, I I I've, I've experienced the stereotypical caricature that maybe pops into all of our minds. As I was on a doorstep in the city on the northeast side of town, and I met a violent and angry atheist man who, among declaring Christians to be conservative uh, morons who voted for Trump and you know were ruining America and a bunch of other things, we eventually got to a place where we started talking about his dismissal of the Bible. You guessed it, because of this ivory tower scholarship. The things in there can't be trustworthy. And he pointed to miracles and he said, how impossible is that? We don't think like that anymore. The modern mind, modern man dismisses it. So this is a disease of unbelief. Uh, and it's present among the first uh, group that we're talking about here. They, uh, they oppose the miraculous by denial. And we need to avoid that error when we think about a text like this. Now, secondly, though, there is another trend of manipulation regarding the miraculous. It's the other end of that spectrum. Uh, sadly, this group has likely, I think, done more damage to the real purpose of signs and miracles 
in the scripture than any other. Uh, This group or trend of thinkers have a hyper focus on the miraculous and on the miracles in scripture, right? They read uh, uh, this summary in Acts uh, and others like it, and they assume it is a one-to-one to their own faith and their own experience, they, uh, they, they, there are leaders among this thinking that, that manipulate and exploit weak people that are sick and dying and hurting by saying you can have promises of healing, you can have signs like this, you can have wonders in your life if you just have enough faith. So there are entire leaders that are devoted to teaching falsely on this. And I would say in this era, at best, Christians who believe these kinds of things falsely, like they have an over- uh, is sensitive. They're overexcited. They pursue too much the things that are presented in texts like this. Christians who believe such things about these signs and wonders and are caught in such teaching, it causes incredible discouragement at the least. Uh, but at its worst, people can be deceived and actually not possess salvation. You can be deceived by the evil one, trapped in unbelief uh, that overextends to believing lies about the purpose of God's miracles. So this gathered church in Acts possesses uh, great power. And this verse is itself a testimony to the answer to prayer that they've received from God. But the purpose of these miracles have got to fall for them, like they do for us, in the middle of that spectrum, right? See, for them, it was more than skin deep. They, they were seeing these miracles, uh, but they weren't pursuing them wrongly. They're pursuing them correctly. You see, every person I've ever met that says that they practice tongues or that they seek the gifts of healing or they have power over the demonic, every time I've talked to them, they've also boasted a most shallow, unrecognizable faith. That is, what wants to parade is as luxurious and powerful and emotional and and all-consuming and we're in it. We're doing the Spirit's work when probed or pressed or persecuted or really challenged It buckles. Why? Well, that's because a gospel that is boiled down to signs and sign gifts alone is no gospel at all. Just like on the other extreme, a gospel that only tries to, you know, rationalize God's miraculous power out of the equation is also no gospel at all. You run the risk in both of these dangers of really seeing what God is up to in the miracle. So we have to avoid these errors. Now, both of these modern extremes leave a seeker of the truth starved for salvation. You may be feeling that now. That was kind of intentional for for this sermon point, I'm being honest. Uh, Kind of pull you away from the text and kind of starve you with these extremes. People live like this, though. People live on the extremes I've described to you, and they're starving for truth. There are Christians, mind you, that live on these extremes, rational thinkers that never succumb to the reality that God's power is at work and the Spirit does amazing things and others who absolutely overindulge in what they call the Spirit and neglect the study and the diligence that it takes to walk in discipline and faith. To get on either extreme is to quickly lead yourself to be starved for what God wants to do in the miraculous. Salvation. Salvation is what God wants to do when he wants to display his power. We avoid the extremes. We find the middle road. So does that mean that we don't doubt? Well, we're asking the question in this first one, look, what is the purpose of miracles? And I am saying that the altogether skeptic is wrong. 
And I am saying that the altogether supernaturalist is wrong. But I'm also trying to offer that there is a touch of both that's needed in our lives. Let me give you a quick caveat. You know, these men, these apostles, are the same men that received from Jesus and his own teaching the gospel. So that Jesus was God, that, that he was, uh, you know, and I want you to hear this again, brother and sister, because I need to hear it again, right? That Jesus was himself God in the flesh, that he was before them living out a perfect life that they could not live, that he possessed the power of God that is salvation for those who would believe, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, died in their stead. Jesus told them he would do it. He did it. Rose from the grave victorious meets them in the flesh, standing on a mountain. In Matthew 28, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And as they stood there, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. Good, comma, but some doubted. Some doubted. To think that our gospel, that's not really complete there. Jesus does love them enough to give them commands, even in their doubt. He does ascend into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He will come back. This is our hope in life and death, that we're not our own, but we belong to God, and God will take care of business for us, right? But what is sometimes not left in the gospel presentation is room for doubt, but God leaves room for doubters. These 11 men who stand on the authority experiencing this perfectly are not in danger of either extreme because they've already stood on the mountain where they were able to doubt and worship, praise and worry. <laughs> they stole God and doubt whether or not they're really on track. I mean, this is human. And this text is human, and we're humans. I love the honesty of Scripture. It is not in the interest of the writers of Scripture to record Matthew 28, where they doubt in verse 17, and then... Acts 5, where there's absolutely no doubt, there's just power. Power enough to be walking, and it seems like even the shadow of the men who are believing by faith that God is working is having an effect. We're going to see later in Acts handkerchiefs, like hankies, like, like blow your nose, and Paul's handkerchief is healing people. How do I make sense of that? What's the purpose in that? Well, don't throw away your doubt. Because you'll miss it. You know, you'll land in the extremes I'm trying to set out as to be avoided. You need to, to remember doubt can, uh, can be a couple of things. It can be a good agent to kind of start your bread to bake and actually give it a rise. Or it can become too much leaven, right? If it's too entertained, and it can destroy the whole loaf. But there is this balance Jesus holds out. But not in our text now do we see any uh, difference. So what's the purpose? Well, look, if the skeptic's wrong and the supernaturalist is ill-advised, what do we need to recover as truth concerning the miracles that are listed here? Okay, the summary miracles. And good scholars show there's actually 13 types of miracles that appear in the book of Acts. From killing people, where God kills Ananias and Sapphira, like we talked about last week, to, to, to healing in the streets. There are 13 categorical, we have to deal with signs that were accompanying this first church. Well, I love what Tim Keller said in The Reason for God. If you've never read it, you should. He, tell, he says this. He says, the purpose of biblical miracles, they lead not simply to cognitive belief. In other words, they don't just lead to cognitive belief, your ability to kind of like rationalize it. They don't lead only there. He says, they lead to worship to awe and wonder. He said that Jesus' miracles in particular were never magic tricks designed only to impress and coerce. And that's true. 
But we modern people, we think of miracles as God kind of uh, temporarily suspending natural order. And I love Keller's explanation because he's saying, no, 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 Jesus isn't showing you know, some suspension of natural order. He's actually trying to show how God can restore natural order. Keller continues, he says, miracles are not just proofs that he, Jesus, has power, but also wonderful foretaste of what he's going to do with that power. Uh, Jesus' miracles, the miracles in Acts, are, are not just a challenge to our minds, Listen to this. He says they're a promise to our hearts. The miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, though they are that. They're a promise to our hearts. What is he promising? A world to come. You see, this church, this group, did you hear that in the end there, what I'm saying? A promise-keeping God is at the heart of this New Testament church. Believe that God is going to do what he said he will do. That's what gave the accompaniment of these signs, okay? I mean, there they are hoping God will get us again. God will come again. He'll give us all that we need until then. And that's where miracles come. And what do they do? They aid the promises of God. That's all the miracles and acts do is they continually prop up the promises of God, prop God's word up. You want to see a miracle in Acts? You better be ready to hear the gospel preached. You want, you, want to, you want to see house to house, them breaking bread and doing it in intense unity? You better be ready because more are going to be added. People are going to believe. Why? Because the word's going to be preached and it's never divorced. That context is powerful. For the New Testament church, those miracles came, you know, They gave them more hope, more unity, more ability to continue in what was being revealed by God to this first church as the way. I'm trying to say that the miracles that are here, the signs and wonders, had a specific purpose. There's a chronology, you know, a matter of order that happens. Notice the order of appearance in these verses. In these verses. Verses. In these verses. It says, you know, that they were all together in Solomon's portico. You should always have the church gathered together before you have an amazing things happen in the streets. Do you see the order even in the text? Luke is saying, yeah, they carried them out and the, and the sick were laid in the streets. They had cots and mats, the shadows, the, the power, the people coming from all over. But notice what he puts first. It's little, but they were all together in Solomon's portico. Best we tell, this is, they gathered first. They gathered for the normal experience of believing together the gospel and holding up the word of God. And then comes the fruit. Again and again and again, we see a physically gathered and united church mentioned here. And then the gifts and the miracles of God appear. This shows us what? That the gifts belong to the gathered church. Now, everyone agrees on that. Whether you're way, way into spiritual gifts or you're way far away in a cessationist view. Everyone believes, if they're truly believing, that when it comes to the gifts, the extraordinary, it belongs to God. And then they believe that God's church belongs to him. And so, therefore, we must conclude, Scripture will always teach, the gifts belong to God. Now, uh, to God's church. To God's church. I want to point that out. Because you know what happens Notice, the normal means of grace and the supernatural wonders that accompany it in the book of Acts 
are not happening in some evangelical revival. I kid you not, I couldn't have planned this. I got a text today from a local pastor inviting us for me to tell y'all to go to a revival event that they're doing Wednesday through Sunday coming up soon to have a revival preacher come from out of town and to preach and pack the pews and get everybody excited and let's revival, woo, right? It is not some special evangelical event that they put on. Now, I'm not here to like absolutely slam those for of course they have their purpose, I mean, I'm standing here as a testimony to you that I heard the gospel and believed it was such an event. But I'm telling you, it ain't the normal prescription of, of, of Scripture. Okay? To, to, what we see that's normal is it's not some evangelical revival event. It's not a massive crusade for Christ. It's not even the house-to-house small group fellowship that they had going on. That was super important. But they didn't put small groups as the place where God would demonstrate his saving power, his ability to bind and keep and give authority to people and speak for him, to practice the ordinances in faith as they took the Lord's Supper together regularly, as they voted themselves to the apostles' teaching and prayer. It was there that God continually manifests his power. It wasn't at a conference. The gifts belong to God. The church belongs to God. We should not divorce the context. Now, our answer to the purpose of miracles we have raised now, I think, is simple. If you see it here, miracles only affirm what God normally accomplished through the power of His gathered people. And they should not be dismissed by us or overly expected. Because when we overexpect or we dismiss, I think we mischaracterize what God does in His powerful working. And we begin to not honor what He does, which is truly miraculous. Give saving faith. When you see signs and wonders, they better serve the preaching and the believing of the true gospel. That is the ultimate sign of our Lord. Wasn't it Jesus himself who said to a Pharisees and a group of Jews just like this before he went on to die and make atonement for sin, who wanted so eagerly to see the signs and to behold, honestly, this, right? They wanted to see these things on display in the temple. And Jesus told them, he said, I'll give you one sign. One sign, because an evil generation seeks for a bunch of signs. Let me give you one, the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, and so he was out, so the Son of Man must be. And then he goes on to do what? Share, share about his death. He must be raised up. And what did Jesus do? He laid himself down on a Friday in death willingly. He stayed dead on a Saturday, and then by the power of the God's Spirit, regenerating resurrection hope, Jesus rose again. Three days, one sign, the preaching of the gospel. That's the best sign. That's the only sign. So when signs and wonders show up, Luke wants you to note that you're not getting this summary till five chapters in. You best believe there's been two sermons before this. There's been 5,000 people who have done the miracle of, I see Jesus for what he is. I forsake my life. It's nothing to me. And I follow him and I'm born again. The miracle has happened 5,000 now innumerable times over. So be not distracted by the shadows in the streets. Look for the true sign. This is the purpose of signs. It remains the purpose of signs. We must avoid the extremes. The signs promote the normal means of grace and authentic salvation in the book of Acts, period. Now, the rest of our text only affirms this. So let's ask our second question this morning. What was the effect? What was the effect? Let me just go ahead and say at the close of that first point, if you were hopeful that I would really, really dive into what we should do today, I won't because I don't think the text does. But let's all get coffee and agree to talk about 
whether a view of you know, no continuationing of the gifts or a lot of the gifts or whatever, let's do that over lunch. So I admonish you, if you're like feeling like a, it's wanting for you to really agree or disagree or you want to debate, good. Pick it up in Bible study this week, ladies. Pick it up, brothers, and let's talk about these things. But I think the text kind of stops there. It says, deal with the signs. They're there, but deal with them rightly. See what they have propagated. Okay? And then beyond that, let's work on agreeing to disagree. But man, they hold up the gospel, right? Well, what effect did that have? That's what I want to see next. Luke includes it, and he inserts it in the middle in verses 13 and 14. You see verse 13, okay? It says, none of the rest of the people. Now, in my opinion, this is talking about the half-professors, that no one, even the apostles know truly to be converted or not. I think when it says none of the rest dared join them, Luke has in mind here what we just studied for 11 verses last week, okay? He has the Ananias and Sapphira previous uh, verse type people. Those who are there um, and, you know, they're, they're present in this group. So if you don't know or you miss or you don't remember, you know, the first 11 verses show in our text this example of this married couple uh, who, who, you know, acted like they professed salvation. They were right there among the rest of the people pretending to believe. But we learn in the text they were deceived by Satan. Their sinful flesh was leading them into thinking that they were believers. So they were a part of the group and they were around the excitement and they were, quote unquote, believing in word, but not in action. And if you forget, God judged them by putting them to death in a matter of three hours time span. They're both lying on the ground, being carried away by young Jewish Christian men to go be buried in a grave dead. And God did that. Now, signs and wonders among this group were not just in the positive thinking in the positive healing sense. And Luke sets out these first 11 verses to show that. Don't divorce the 11 from the, you know, we ask, what is the immediate context? That's super helpful to see because the signs and wonders that are healings in the shadows, they're amazing. But also another sign, another wonder is God's miraculous mystery of divine judgment. And he does it. But you know what happens as a result of it? No one is going to flippantly do what they did. Verse 13 is now clearer because of this. Look, now that persecution and divine judgment are on the table, For anyone who would repent and follow Jesus, the stakes are higher. If anyone had equated Christ's word, where he said, take up your cross daily and follow me, if anyone was equating that as some romantic gesture or some poetic license that Jesus was taking instead of the actual truth, if anyone thinks he did not mean what he said about following him, now they know. Okay, this is true. Christians believe that the grace of God that has been won for us by our champion, Savior, Jesus, it is not a cheap grace. It's just not. So we shouldn't expect to walk in the grace and to continue as a church in the grace without some kind of cost. If the one who paid it all was willing to do it and called us to follow him and take up our cross, should we not also then understand and expect that we will be called into that same kind of following. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer really famously and I think accurately said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at the call of Jesus. Man, Bonhoeffer is right. So Dietrich writing in 1937 is exactly right. This call, the call to believe, is a call to consider that you may die for this. Period. No caveats. Jesus looks at them in Luke 9, 23, and 24. Would you come after and follow me? Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. At the heart of the gospel is the reality of a call to die. It's a cost. And that is the effect that these signs and wonders had on them. All of them. This verse, I think, shows us that we must take seriously a confession that someone makes when they say they believe because God takes it seriously. The context of receiving such signs and wonders is proven here. So good leaders like Peter and the apostles understood that so much, uh, they understood it so much that they were careful as they added to their number. And these verses actually show us that that care, it shows us that carefulness, you know what it shows us through? Through the eyes of the watching world. None of the rest dared to join them. They put a distance between them and these Christians, these followers of Jesus. Why? Because the cost was identified. Church leaders today do so little teaching on the cost of following Jesus. Church leaders often do so little work to maintain the care of membership in their churches. These first apostles are, are, are speaking very clear language about who is in and who is out. Peter is speaking on the Holy Spirit's behalf, right? I mean, he's writing. This is scripture that Luke is writing. And the example to be followed is that there is this clear lying to the Holy Spirit, two left dead, and now none of the rest that were possibly approaching that error dare join them. The lines were drawn in love. I think this is the most evangelical, evangelistically minded thing that churches could do. And yet we see the lines of churches get blurrier and blurrier and blurrier all around us. We know this is true. The effect of these signs and wonders was a purer church. Notice, I didn't say a perfect church. I said a purer church. The effect of the signs and wonders was a pure church, not a perfect church. But it was one that was trending toward purity all the time. Man, we need this. We need this effect in our churches. Okay? I pray we continue to have it here in our church. But it's really true. We see the opposite today. Even our personal experiences, me and Blake as elders, has proven that. You know, Blake and I have personally received training from leaders in major denominations that are concerned about bringing souls to Christ by blurring the lines of what is and is not a church, who is and who is not a Christian, how a person can be converted. We've experienced the teaching firsthand. The idea of belonging before believing tactics sound sweet, they sound encouraging, they sound godly, right? but they're opening the church to dilution. Now, let me be clear. God is not against lost people being around the church, okay? 
God is, is in no way against a church that has a wonderful desire and zeal to spend as much time as possible around lost people. Okay, God wants to demonstrate his power. Who do you think he's healing? Who do you think he's casting demons out of? Who do you think he's bringing from death to life, from, from darkness to light? It is the lost. But when there is this confusion of language, of association, of a bride, when the bride begins to say, I'm the bride of Christ, but is tarnished and, un, and not handling their sin, when the audacity to say that a, a person is somehow possessing faith but is walking in disobedience and no Christian around them says anything to them, the lines are blurred. God demonstrates that he will have a pure church. Okay? He invites his bride to, to uh, understand her purity and the leaders of the church stand up and they say, hold on. Let it be known. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to gather together. This is what the word is when it's preached. This is how we rightly or, or uh, do the ordinances together to give shape. These are the things that I have set apart for you to understand and to chase after that assurance of my election, God says. Pursue these things. But when we begin to blur the lines and we say, that this person, maybe, we don't know, is kind of a Christian. We don't know. Let's just do it. Man, it only brings pain. So God's prerogative revealed in this narrative is that it is good for those who stand on the fringe to be back away from his holy church. It's good that they be warned. Don't you dare be found with one hand in Christ's side, the other in a pot of gold. Right? God says, get that kind of Christian away from me. God's, God's eye, his, his thought is, don't be caught with one eye on the cross and the other on the attractions of their flesh. D don't, don't bring to me one foot on the narrow path that I would lead you in and the other still hanging on the wide road of destruction. Do not have half a mind set to God's will and the other half aroused, excitable by the pleasures of the world. God tells his church in Revelation later as he writes that he would rather them be hot or to be cold than to have some confusion or some middle road of lukewarm calling it Christianity but affirming the things God hates. He says, I would rather spit you out of my mouth in judgment, right, than to have you be among the people. This text shows us let there be no confusion, no question, no doubt cast on the people of God on their motives, on their efforts, on their hopes, on their mission. And those who dare not join them, in verse 13, have seen at the expense of Ananias and Sapphira's breath the severity of God's judgment in these things. Okay? This early church lived out the, the, the command of Jesus to treat like a Gentile and a tax collector. That privilege of church membership to understand the authority and the binding and the loosing was demonstrated directly from the hand of God before them. And it had an effect. And what was that effect? What was the purpose of the sign and the gift? Right here in the midst of the beautiful and awesome things is the reminder that no one dared call themselves a Christian out of convenience and cultural acceptance. No one dared do that. Why? Because they understood what it actually meant to turn from sin and to follow Jesus. It was costly. Purity in the congregation. Now, what was the other effect? Notice it's not just verse 13 warning the 
person who thinks they're a Christian and not, or the lost. You know what it also was? The most effective plan to bring in actual Christians into the church. Look at verse 14. And more than ever, Luke has not used that language, but he's choosing to use it now. Okay, innumerable, we've, we've already lost the numbers. 5,000 was there, but now we see, okay, he's not even using numbers anymore. It's getting that big. But you know what he says? And more than ever, more than ever, believers. Do you see what was added to the Lord? Believers, believers were added. Okay, not, not, not super skeptics who are kind of getting in on a rational level and they're kind of thinking their way into Jesus. Not super spiritualized people that are like always feeling Jesus and I don't have time for, it was Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, born-again, cost-counting brothers and sisters in Christ that were added. Believers. Believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. It's so clear, right? Signs and wonders assist the preaching of the apostles among the people. That's verse 12. I'm giving you a summary. Look at it with me. And they, the gathered church, are together in Solomon's portico. Also verse 12. And none of the rest, that's those like Ananias and Sapphira entertaining false profession in verse 13. None of the rest join. They're warned of God and they withdraw among the people watching in high esteem. Verse 13's ending. And now what we're talking about, the effect is, and then believers, true professors. What do they do? They see what it means. They see what it means to repent to place faith in Christ's name, to turn from the world, and to follow Christ by being added to this church's membership. It's in and it's out language in verse 14. And it's as explicit as it can be. Now, I said earlier, it's a pure church, not a perfect church. That is so important. Because if there's one lambasting kind of accusation that I hear as I try to encourage fellow brothers of mine in the pastorate to just consider the importance of things like this, membership, meaningful commitment, covenant, language, like understanding yourself to be in or out of the family, understanding what God has done when he says things like binding and loosing in heaven. If there's one pushback I've found, it's that, oh, you just think you can have a perfect church. It's just false. All right? Yes, God, the first time, makes it very clear with his own hand. But do you know as scripture continues to progress, God is going to create in his own words and wisdom a system that is built in with grace? The leaders are not just by name, Peter, given keys. They're now 1 Timothy 3 type men. Paul's going to write and give a whole list of things to say, hey, don't let anybody just stand up there and say, you're not a Christian anymore. You're not a Christian anymore. No way. Make him a qualified individual, a man of God after his own heart, managing his household well so he can manage the household of God well. God's going to give leaders and more teaching on it. God's going to take Acts 6, which seems like a deacon, but they're also preaching, and he's going to get even clearer later. Why? Because the church is going to continue in its imperfection. It's going to continue in having the Ananias and Sapphiras, the liars, the, the cheaters, the people who, who are somehow deceiving not only themselves, but everyone around them. But God loves his bride. He wants a pure church. So he gives signs and wonders, and the purity is held up. But what goes away is the overtness of the signs and the measure of God's miraculous works as the increasing power of the word becomes more self-evident the church becomes more sustainable. It's an amazing effect. It's an amazing effect. I love what God has done. I mean, a couple of things stand out to me in closing here this morning. Luke, as I said, shows that more than ever people believe. That's amazing. Okay? Considering that 5,000 we know have believed, the pure, the bride, 
of this group, the sweeter the marriage feast. Now, that is backwards to our modern thinking of evangelism. But the idea of faithful evangelism for a church like this is that if you will do the hard work of knowing who you are and knowing what you do together and supplanting all that as much as you can to God's word and his authority, you are doing evangelism. You are making pure what God has died and purchased with his own blood. And as you throw yourself into that, not perfectly, but purely, at every turn, do you believe that God will do the rest? You should. Jesus is the one who said that they will know you, or they'll know me, by the love you have for one another. So the purer the commitment, the sweeter the marriage feast. Luke makes it clear also that it's not just men at this point. Okay? He makes it very explicit, men and women as well, showing that the gospel is for all. This is some seed language that's getting us ready to see that it's not just going to be you know, men and women. It's not just going to be slave and free. It's not just going to be Jew and Gentile. It's going to be every tribe, every nation, every culture, every tongue. God shows no partiality in who he saves. And so we see here men and women severely divided in their society are both. So many are believing. So this church knew that Jesus belonged to them because salvation was promoted regularly in their gathering. They preached the word. They took the Lord's Supper together. They baptized those who believed. And accompanying that was some sweet icing on the cake, right? Signs and wonders. But they had a purpose. Their purpose continued to boast that thing. So that way that when the signs and wonders eventually go away some, Okay, And wherever you land on that conclusion, how far they've gone away doesn't matter because what happens is everybody, they, they're less now, right? We don't, see, we don't see this. We don't see me going out there and you know, using my jacket to heal these students on SFA's campus. I wish I could do that. That'd be awesome. But that's silliness for me to think because it's, it's a misunderstanding, right? But the, the revealed word of God says that as he did those signs, that preaching just got higher and higher and higher and God's glory went out. And went to every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Me and you are here today because of the greatest miracle that God can work among people. Letting you possess in your own heart the hope of salvation. So let us as a church hold out and hold together for that greatest miracle that God will work among us. There is salvation to those who do not believe. There's keeping of our souls for those of us who do. If we devote ourselves to purity, we will see God's work done. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll sing Jesus is mine. Lord, I pray that you'll help us, help me, help us all, Lord, to continue to believe that you're making sense, Lord, of, of your divine signs and wonders. You, God, make the most sense out of them. So I pray, Lord, that you will help your church, help us here at RBC to grow in our commitment and our fervency and our belief, God, that even when we don't see the walls shake and when we pray, or even when we don't have healing in the shadow of our leaders, we know that in your wings and under your care, there is healing that goes beyond the skin. It goes into the soul and it saves a man or a woman. It's enough for us, God. So will you help us to believe that you are ours? And that means that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Lord, this church is going to face massive persecution. We know they did to come, God. And they would be called to do what Bonhoeffer warns, Lord, um, that we are to accept your call is to call to come and die. So Lord, will you help us to be about the normal, everyday, 
monotonous, beautiful gospel. Will you just help us to be about it in our study, in our conversations, in our times, so that we can be made ready, God. Lord, we are ready for you to do whatever you will do here. So Lord, we pray that it will be according to your will. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.